Welcome to Evanston Rules. I'm Larise Bell, here with my co-inspirers, Michael Duvall and Ron Whitmore. We are honored to be joined by our friends, the Millers, in part one of a two-part episode. Far too often, the description or perception of the Black family has been undervalued, underestimated, and marginalized. In the 80s, we were graced with the Cosby Show, in 2014, Blackish. However, the real deal is that the Black family has always superseded the middle class expectations. The Millers are one of those families. They represent the kind of family that we can all be proud of. They are unapologetically Black, unapologetically successful. They help us embrace the reality that there has always been successful Black families that have thrived socially, economically, and educationally. We at Evanston Rules are honored to have such an awesome conversation and experience with the Millers. They communicated their generational success, achievements in the place we all call home, Evanston. Listen as we learn from and appreciate their stories and contributions. Welcome to Evanston Rules. Today we're here with the marvelous Millers, including Teal, Willie, and Allison. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for being yeah. here, guys. Good to be here. Thank you for awesome, having us. Awesome. We all grew up in Evanston. I met Michael in sixth grade at Nichols, met Ronnie first grade at Dewey. First grade yeah. at Dewey. Mm -hmm. I'm from Evanston, but I live in Charlotte. We've been here about 20 years. So. Does Michael know that your people are from Charlotte, Dad? Now he knows. Now he does. Mecklenburg County. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Are they still here? Oh, yeah. We were just there a couple of summers ago. My aunt, well, my entire family, basically. I used to spend every summer until I was 16 in Charlotte. We are farm people. We had uh, hogs and chickens and puppy dogs and running all over the place. Yeah, that, that uh, part of town is uh, very different though. It's, um, there's rail line getting ready to go up that way. And we always say Charlotte because it's easy. Yeah, 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 I get it. Yeah, yeah, it's kind of like people say Chicago when you're really from Evanston. Absolutely. <laughs> uh -huh. Let's just jump in. Willie, what does an Evanstonian look like? How would you describe it? It's just a state of being. You know, we have all different makes, shapes, races, creeds, and colors, but, you know, people who grew up in and around Evanston just love Evanston, but there is no, from my perspective, a description of an Evanstonian. Tia? Yeah, I, I would have to second that. It's not a look. I think it's an attitude, more community. Like, we have so many different people here, so many different cultures. Allison, what say you? I think uh, that they both hit it on the head that the idyllic presentation of Evanston is, is right, is that there are so many different types of people here. There are so many different um, ways of life that connect, that weave together in Evanston. Culturally, spiritually, emotionally, spatially, um, I think that there's a lot of active work that maybe we passively pursue. I think that that is what happens uh, when you are placed in a situation that does have so many unique individuals, personalities, experiences. 
Teal, tell us a little bit about growing up in Evanston for you. I grew up on uh, Garnett over by <laughs> Chicken Shack, right there. And it's the whole block. So going south from Garnett was black. Foster, the next block north of us, was all white. And they really didn't care for black people. I mean, we shared an alley. You know, we would like play in the alley, but we didn't really, we didn't play over on Foster. We didn't, you know, when we were allowed to like go around the block and stuff, we kind of stayed, we stayed in our block. But on my block, uh, I lived in the house with my grandmother and we, the extended family lived there. And then down the street was my Aunt Teal. And then two doors west of her was another family, the Gandys. And so we all had this kind of family thing there. And so we stayed there until I think 1968, and then we moved up to Asbury and Grove, right behind Dewey's school. I don't know, I didn't feel that, that this was like my whole life because I went to Noise when Noise was still the school. Mm-hmm. My mother worked in the loop and we had like orthodontists and things like that. So we would every now and then go into the city as kids. And then my father's office was over in, uh, on Hartree and Dempster. So I knew there were other parts <laughs> to this world here. What was your father's office? What did your father do? He was a general practitioner. You know, he was a sole practitioner. He was on staff at, if anyone remembers, Bethesda Hospital over in Howard and a community hospital in St. Francis. And when he had private practice and worked at the hospitals. Willie, what was it like growing up in Evanston? You know, trying to dust off this old brain. I can just remember it was the best of times. It was running and jumping and not having a care in the world and not knowing that, you know, what our financial situation was. I didn't know whether I was rich or poor. I just knew that I was taken care of. I had two great loving parents and a neighborhood full of guys that I grew up with who we were just friends. And, you know, I didn't know that there was anything more than that. That that was the world to me. What was your neighborhood? When we moved in, we moved into those houses that were south of the high school were the houses that were built for the returning GIs from the Korean War. My dad had to buy the house on contract. I found the mortgage for it when he paid it off when we were cleaning out his house. As Ron knows, my, my parents both passed away a couple of years ago. So we were going through and I found the house he paid for. $4,500 for that house and still couldn't afford to buy it or get a mortgage for it. So he had to buy it on contract. So when we moved into that neighborhood, there's always been a raging debate going on between me and the friend who lived across the street from me and another friend who lived down the street from me as who was the blockbuster. One of us, we all claimed that we were the blockbuster. In other words, we were the first black family to move into the neighborhood because the, the entire neighborhood was all white. That pretty much was my universe right there. We did everything together. And I was an only child. Those guys had brothers and sisters, but that's who I ran with. That was my Hartree posse. <laughs> so again, you, you mentioned Hartree, Lake Street. What was the distinct difference? They were unknown, really. They were not from my area so they were it was, it was like when you see you meet somebody for the first time and you go hmm, I wonder what that guy's about 
you know, but we were all kids. Mm -hmm. We had, many of us had no care in the world and we were living and enjoying life. And we thought that uh, our world was the world. Which is common when you're younger. Yeah. yeah. Sort of like Allison's experiences from Evanston to Skokie. And what's interesting is, what was that, a matter of two miles? So for me, full disclosure, <laughs> I grew up in Evanston, but I live in Skokie. I lived in Skokie. I don't even live in Skevinston, right? I live squarely at the Crawford Church intersection in Timberidge, which is predominantly Jewish. And so for me, I, when I left Evanston, it was the first time that I had met people that had never met another Muslim, had never met another atheist, had never met another Jewish person. That was an interesting and revolutionary concept that there were places where these intersections of multiple cultures did not exist because that was so part of my normal pattern. When I was growing up, it was not unusual at Hanukkah for latkes to be made or to have matzah or to know about Islam or to know that there was an entire group of people who did not choose a religious path, right? In atheism. And also shout out to Springfield Baptist Church. I got to say that for my grandmother. That is something that's very concrete and, and tangible. I, I had a great time. And I think it's, it's great that they both went first because I think it's sort of highlights my world, which was that I had a father who was an only child who uh, had a deep friend circle and an extended cousin setting. I had a mother who had grown up, spent time on Garnett, whose parents then were on Asbury. I had the luxury of moving around between a lot of places. Um, I knew that the first house that they had that involved me was across the street from Marble Crown on Washington. And so I was there until I was three and I have fond memories of what that uh, felt like. Uh, and there were other children that were in that uh, complex who I uh, would then go on to go to junior high school with, which created sort of a familiarity I then, like I said, moved over into Skokie, which sort of extended my world. So I had a very broad and very, but yet still very tight knit community of comfort. By the time I had shown up, my dad was very deliberate, I believe, about making sure that that world was opened up to me. But as far as Evanston goes, I had a lot of family. So I had to pass both my grandparents' house on that walk. So I would pass my maternal grandparents' house and I'd maybe stop and like get a snack and check in with them. And then I would have to pass my paternal grandparents' house. And maybe if I got tired or it got dark, you know, maybe I'd throw up the Hail Mary and I'd call in reinforcements to come get me. Or maybe I just kept walking the additional mile and a half home. So, uh... You know, growing up in Evanston, mom, uh, an alder woman, an attorney, dad, a doctor at community hospital. What were the conversations around race and equity as a child that you remember to you? I don't know that we had those. Not that they didn't exist. Dad was a doctor, mom was an attorney, and that's what we did. We didn't talk about it. I remember 
I mean, as a kid, we did stuff with the NAACP and I remember marching and all of this, but it was never, I mean, we, it was, we did it. When did you begin to realize the kind of impact that your parents had on the black community of Evanston or the community of Evanston? Um, you know, I, I think it was more the impact my father had being a physician within the community and then to get to the high school level where people were like, oh yeah, your father's my doctor, your father's my doctor. Really, it's like, okay, fine. And to, to realize, and actually it was, I don't know, maybe, I don't know, four or five years ago where one of our uh, fam coaches said, your father delivered me. He's like, excuse me, really? And so it was, and I had never known that. So mom practiced in the loop. So she had a lot of Chicago clientele, but then uh, she did, she did practice in Evans. She had, you know, clients in Evanston also. And it really wasn't, in, I mean, people knew her, but when she died, that's when, you know, folks were like, your mother was my attorney. They just did what they did. They, there wasn't a whole lot of fanfare. I mean, they didn't come home and we didn't sit down at the table and they went, Tell you what great things we did for the community today. So even with their quietness, though, how do you believe that informed your actions as you grew up and as you became an adult, a woman, a working person, and a parent? The biggest thing would be there weren't barriers. I didn't see barriers. I didn't see bar barriers in terms of um, my ability, my ability to go as far as I needed to go or wanted to go or go where I wanted to go. I, I didn't perceive those. So I, I, I didn't see these as obstacles. There were other things that may have been an obstacle. In our family, which I was told later that, that there was, we had a lot of folks that went on to, to do graduate work in our family. So my father was a physician. He had two sisters that were, were attorneys his brother was an attorney. Uh, my namesake was actually an editor at The New Yorker. Oftentimes living in America, we just learn to go about our business and be about our business and accomplish and do great things for generations. And I think too often those stories aren't heard enough about just what the expectation in the Black House is, right? Basically, and I think we probably carried this on from, you know, Teal's parents. I think Teal was very humble in, in terms of, and, and we were kids. So a lot of times as children, we don't recognize what's going on, the lessons that are going on around us. We're sort of hangers on and, you know, they're, they're not doctor or all, they're just mom and dad to us. But I do remember when I first started hanging around with that family, there was never any limitations on what you could achieve. The, the family from Doc, which is what everybody called him, Doc, Doc, his nickname to us was Doc Tuna, um, and Mame were, well, what do you want to do? Well, go do it. No excuses, not, not acceptable. You decide if you want to do that, you got to put yourself out there and accomplish that. Those guys did that. And they had all those tremendous successes of themselves. And so, you know, they, they had lived it. And I think that they passed that on to their children, to Teal. And so when we talked about terms of no limiting factor from our 
I guess, mental abilities. We never really saw that. And so then you throw in the, always the hard question of race. Well, we never said, I can't do that because I'm black. What would happen in some instances, and sometimes we weren't even aware of it, is we would try to do something, whatever it may be, because we felt that we had the capabilities to do it. And for some reason, it didn't work out. And we would say, wow, I don't know why that did. didn't work out for me. I'm, you know, I'm this, I'm that, I'm this, and I'm that. Oh, and then as we started to get older and the world started to become more realistic, we recognized that there was another component. There was another X factor. And it wasn't that we weren't as good as the other person or had better abilities. It was because of the color of our skin. And so we started dealing with those factors and saying, well, I'm still as good as anyone else. I still have the capabilities to do that. And I think I've shared this with you, Ron, on a number of occasions. If you're not going to let me succeed because I'm a black man, you have to tell me that that's the reason why I'm not going to be successful. I'm not going to say I'm not going for this job because I'm a black man and you're not going to give it to me anyways. I'm going to make you tell me I can't have the job. Right. And so for our kids, we've always said to them, you know, don't let anybody stand in your way. Go for the brass ring. Make them step to the plate. If if they're going to tell you you're not good enough, they need to be able to justify it, and you need to be able to tell them why they are wrong. Right. And that's sort of how we approach everything with our kids. Here's where it's interesting, right? We've done a series of these calls, and, and particularly as it relates to people of color on the call. There is a separation. There's a tale of two cities, a tale of two high schools, and there is a pathway to people, how people make it. Right. And there's a pathway how people may not make it. And I think what we're trying to get after is if you were giving advice to people now, like what is it that we learn on those of us who feel like we may have made it right for the people who didn't. When you look back, Allison, you saw the disproportionality, right? There's a school within a school. Mm-hmm. And so the question is, how do we get at that? Because the name of the podcast is Evans of Rules, right? There's two Evansons. What rules are they? I'm actually going to frame this a little bit more. So the background for, for this is that my paternal grandfather was a custodian. And my uh, grandmother, at different points, she had worked at the library. She was a caretaker. And so I think there's a part of my life that has brought together those two Evanstons in this Black experience, for lack of a better word. For me, what that created was that it allowed me to go between a couple of, not just physically, but between a couple of different mentalities and a couple of different places. And so um, I will tell you that when I was in elementary school, one of the, and this doesn't happen anymore either, but one of my favorite places to be Um, was in the boiler room. If you clapped erasers, you could clap erasers outside. Or I remember at Walker, they got this super awesome, like handy, like this mechanized, it didn't work as well as banging those things outside or like writing your name on one of the brick walls. I remember all of those gentlemen by name. They maybe smelled a little bit like coffee and cigarettes. I appreciated that. They reminded me of my grandfather. It was very safe. 
I recognize the blue shirts. I recognize the white oval with Joe written in there. But one of my best basketball fans, one of my best supporters, was uh, an individual on the custodial staff at Walker Elementary School. And he used to uh, hang out with me after school or if I needed to go into the gym or shoot some free throws and um, kept up with me all the way through high school. Um, and so there's a, to get back to your point of what would you say, I would say that it, you really do have to see people. You have to, you have to interact and you have to humanize um, and I also had the benefit of, I mean, I mentioned the sports, but I, I played a lot of sports, which gave me a lot of access to a lot of people, um, outside of my classes, outside of those AP, um, and honors classes. And I'm not saying that you, you know, you can't both be a, an athlete, um, and a bookworm because, you know, those are the two things. How that many letters did you get? Varsity letters? How well, many was that? Yeah, well, tell the truth about your experience as an athlete at Evanston. Not to cut you off. Was it double digits? Don't be as humble as your father. Tell, tell us what's, what. I come by it honest, Ron. Come on. Um, I have 12, which means that I have only played varsity sports from freshman until senior year. I have uh, varsity letters in golf, in softball, in volleyball, and in basketball. And golf, volleyball, basketball, softball. That's four. Four sports. <laughs> I'm in the Evanston Hall of Fame. I, I'm sorry. I didn't hear you. One more time. I'm not doing it. <laughs> 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 so I will tell you that in terms of like recognizing things and going back to like the, there's a there's a community element to it. I think that's really what it comes down to. Really knowing your community um, and because of my access through sports, I met, you know, there would be a lot of people who would be having academic difficulties and I would try to make myself available to, to tutor or to, to be available. But there, to go back to what you said, there is a supplemental aspect to it. There is the, the high school in loco parentis, right? Ask, acting as, you know, the substitute parent when parents aren't around um in all things academia academia discipline etc but then there's also what does your supplementary network look like and i think that's where the community element comes in what was the race relations like growing up in evanston so so let's talk about race what was your experience in evanston what was that like it certainly was there and it was interesting i was you know, chatting with my sisters yesterday, and we were talking about race and different things in um, going on, you know, as we were growing up. And my mother was the alderman in the fifth ward. And part of what she wanted to do was to desegregate housing. What year approximately? I think it was the late 60s. <laughs> so I'm being told. But um, so, so that's what she did. And I remember doing things for the NAACP, which my parents were both, you know, members of. And well, my mother, who was black, looked white. And so I always grew up with that. She told us she was black, I believed her. But when you look at her, 
And it wasn't until later that, you know, she was saying she, cause she went to law school, she went back to school or finished her law degree when she was an older, a more mature student also. And there were people that thought was she went to law school with them that she was white when they got out. And then, you know, they're like, oh, we're, we're gonna practice together when they found out she was not white, even though she looked white, it was a whole different story. Okay, so I, I, it, I just kind of grew up in this environment. It, it is what it is, you know? Um, and I'm not saying that I didn't experience racism. I rarely took it to heart. Why do you think you didn't take it to heart? That's kind of my personality. I mean, I can't, I can't get upset with, because you don't like the color of my skin. I got no time for you. I'm off doing something else. <clears throat> I cannot tell a lie. I was oblivious. I was the child who was ignorant in their bliss pretty much until I got to high school. So if you were treating me poorly because of my race, it didn't register. If you were treating me well because of my race, it didn't register. I think I still had that kid wonderment. And I sort of go back to this all the time. If we could take the adults out of the equation, kids figure it out. Most of the time they get along, they play, they just say, hey kid, wanna play? Hey, what are you doing? Let's throw that ball here, you know? So Allison, before you tee this up, so tell us a little bit about your experience growing up in Evanston and why are you so able to function being the confident black woman in the room? That was the behavior that was modeled for me. There wasn't a question about whether you were going to go to college. It was where you were going to go. I've never had a conversation in my family about weather. And we can talk about, you know, privilege and, and finances and, and access and all of that. But how we value, how we, not just the family, but how society sets up indicators that allow other people to very quickly make a decision about an individual, that academic pursuit was a box that you should check because it provides a particular level of comfort to people when they're making an assessment of you. Um, and we can talk about whether that the academic structure is correct, whether we're teaching the right things, whether it is focused on, whether it is inclusive. I'm not saying that any of those things apply, but as the majority society certainly evaluates brown bodies, um, there are certain barriers to entry and entry being, you know, life, society, access, um, that having that credential would uh, make it easier. How would you propose changing the status quo? I think it's really hard to legislate a status quo. I think that it's a little column A and a little column B. That's something that we keep coming against, right, in history. So I wanted to ask, you know, you went to Yale, you went to ETHS, you did AP, you were an athlete. When you look at the walls, when you walk through the halls, when you see the library, what do you see? It, it, you know, where are we with decolonizing? And how effective and important do you think that is? 
Decolonizing. Okay, let's unpack that a little bit. We have black and brown children and adults who've walked through these halls, never seen themselves recognized um, as writers, as artists, as Mm -hmm. people who've been given awards, as people who are founders, as the historians that Mm -hmm. continue straight up through into a place like Yale. And, you know, you see names on buildings. Whose names are on buildings? The people who give money, not the people who built them necessarily. Sure. So when you see this, and I believe it does a lot of damage to our people. I believe it does a lot of damage to everyone because they don't see the world as a full place. How hurtful do you think those collections are and what would you do or what ideas do you have to decolonize those collections? I would be lying if I said that I was like an anti-capitalist. I do believe that there is a certain amount of liquidity economics that's required to keep things moving. That's, we can sort of park that for a little bit right now. But I do think that it is a robust discussion around how things came to be. The good and the bad, right? That the fact that, you know, suburbs were settled in particular ways after the war and and dependent upon the GI Bill, right? That a large percentage of African Americans were prevented from taking out mortgage loans, even though they were presented with money from the government because of other systemic aspects, or that we had redlining that was actually a legal proponent through covenants in deed agreements, and that although it was eventually overturned, the result had long-lasting effects in settling neighborhoods. And I think having a real conversation about that, as opposed to not having a, a rich discussion around it, is what generates the understanding of the contribution, right? Because right now we have, I mean, you know, you have textbooks that still say African-Americans were brought in as indentured servants, right? Which is significantly different than the status of a slave. Uh, And so to have conversations around the fact that counters the narrative that there is a criminality or a requirement for saying or or, punishment in order to adjust behavior, Um, should be counterbalanced with examples of what I think a large population of African Americans know. And I think we are always surprised by the fact that it is not part of the larger narrative. Now, to say that there aren't things that I don't learn where I'm like, oof, I didn't know that. (laughs) And we know that, you know, oftentimes, particularly in disenfranchised communities, that there's the intersection, not just of identity, right? But there's the intersection of race and class, which adds another layer to it, right? So there's an aspect of classism that allows us to, some people would say, take advantage, and other people would say, uh, develop, right? Certain uh, gaps in knowledge or certain, or, or um, you know, certain press particular advantages that other ident- others identify, right? And we reward that to some extent across America, right? Where you have to be, you know, you have to be, there has to be an aspect of ingenuity and development and, and creation and who things belong to versus who develops them. I mean, we, we know, we saw that in Facebook and that just involved Mark Zuckerberg and the, the Winklevoss twins. So, you know, specifically that to me, ties together actually with the idea of decolonizing because it's seeing yourself in places, seeing people who look like you, seeing your guides, your leaders, your mother, your grandmother, your aunts, your community, 
and being able to mimic that. And that is the trope of the strong Black woman that we talk about, right? That's right. But with that comes difficulties because you're working at least twice as hard. You're having traumas and yet we still get up and we go. And there is a cost to that. It is, it's, it's disingenuous to think that there are not strategies that I and other black women think about and women of color think about before they enter into rooms. Um, there is the, the double preparation. There is the, um, you know, the stuttering, studying of mannerisms and, and, you know, to the extent that uh, it uh, prevents you from belonging. I think it helps to be able to see yourself. And I would say that certainly in my family, I was, I do have the privilege of being surrounded by a lot of accomplished brown women. And, and accomplished could be, you know, a whole, there are a whole bunch of ways that I think we, sh we should define that, right? And I think it allowed me, because I did have so many of these, so many women around me to see what growing up or happiness or how about this existing in your own skin looked like in many different forms. There's usually a common theme, but there, is, there, there are a couple of different forms that it takes. And there's a particular resilience. I also think that there's an active coaching uh, and I try to do it when I mentor uh, or talk to other young brown women. And you know, you say, how do I deal with this? How do I, how do I cope with this? I really do try to find, and I'm, I'm, I'm actually not being flippant here, but I, I do try to find the joy in sort of my daily experience. And I think brown people do this very well, uh, where there are things, right? So you do wake up and you see newspaper articles and you see the news and you see something on, so, you know, something small and innocuous. Maybe it's a commercial, maybe it's, you know, a, a, a scripted television show of representation. And sometimes you do get a little dinged. Sometimes you do feel a little bit of that pain. And I try to reflect on some of the things that are not so painful. Thanks for joining in and listening to part one of this two-part episode with the Miller family. Be sure to hit the subscribe button over here at evansonrules.com or on your favorite podcast app. Also follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter so you'll know when all future episodes are available.